What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I am a little nervous. I've thought a lot more about being a dad than I've thought about um, <clears throat> making conversation with the person carrying my baby. <laughs> That's Ed Helms in a scene from the new comedy Together Together, which has the office vet playing a single man who hires a surrogate to have his baby. Stick with us. That synopsis doesn't really do the movie justice. I'll give you that. Together Together is currently playing in limited release, and we've got a review. Plus 1947's The Lady from Shanghai, which is next up in our 40s noir marathon. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, it will be almost a full week since the Oscars by the time a lot of people are hearing this. So the discourse has been discoursed. People are surely already starting to forget about Glenn Close doing debut. Oh my. And Daniel Kaluuya's mom and dad having sex, which are phrases in front of me on a page <laughs> that mean absolutely nothing to me, an ignorant person who did not watch the Oscars. Please, Josh. Explain the Oscars to me and also tell me, as you enlighten me, this was a Steven Soderbergh production. So complete as that you are, have you ranked it yet on Letterboxd? Is this above full frontal side effects? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, first of all, you can play the Oscar grump, but we can no longer act like this show doesn't care about the Oscars because no one other than Sam Van Halgren, our producer, was live tweeting the Oscars. So we've yeah. we've gone so far the other direction now. And he was Sam is actually the one who alerted me to the Steven Soderbergh element. I was not aware of this. Um, he had a few <laughs> good comments on that. No, I have not. I was tempted, Adam. You can log on Letterboxd. The Oscar Awards is something really? you've watched, but I get enough crap when I log a television series from people. I can't imagine the pearl clutching that would go on if I actually logged the Oscar ceremony. So I haven't done the Soderbergh ranking, I'm afraid. Understood. And I don't think it was Sam who alerted me to it. I knew that Soderbergh was producing the Oscars, had heard that whenever it was announced, had then subsequently forgotten. And the morning of the Oscars, where here I am again, sort of resolutely assigned to the fact that I am just not going to watch it. I have too much to do. I got laundry to fold. I'm not watching the Oscars. And then I saw the morning of a reminder on Twitter that it was Soderbergh. And I thought, I can't believe me of all people, one of the biggest Soderbergh apologists on the planet, is not going to make time to watch this production. And it sounds like it had some new wrinkles. Did it overall work for you? Well, let me tell you the story of my Oscars experience. And first of all, Adam, um, if ever a show was meant for folding laundry while watching it, it is the Oscars. So feel free next year to to tackle those both at once. I similarly almost missed the entire show because you'll love this. It'll make me seem so incredibly old. Since moving, we cut the cord, right? No cable in the house. And this is when you got to figure out what to do. These live events that you can't find otherwise get home we driving back from new york city that day picking up my daughter from college you know you're not in the right headspace i'll give myself that get home and think all right i we'll just do a youtube tv trial let's just do that we'll watch this thing you know dump it if we have to later turns out i thought i subscribed to youtube tv 
I'm watching on YouTube, on my television, all the way through, we watch Regina King's great entrance for the opening, and I'm thinking, good, this is working out. And then the video stops, and it turns out that for like an hour, we I've just been watching clips of the Oscars being fed to me on YouTube. The family wow. is irate. I mean, just irate at me. So we missed like the first hour of the show. I think it was before I realized I needed to subscribe to YouTube TV. You're like, Soderbergh, this feels like pastiche. Know, it's, it's like, it's wow. very disjointed. He really went avant-garde with this thing. <laughs> well... Did you ultimately then get on track? Yes. And were you able to watch live or yeah. as close to live as possible? Yeah, we caught we caught up with it. So uh, it was interesting. I like the intimate room. Um, you know, as I said, I wasn't all that invested in this year's awards just because I liked a lot of the films that were up for it, but they weren't among my favorites. It was good to see. Um, you know, Daniel Kaluuya getting recognized. Great to see a Chloe Zhao. Um, getting Best Director and Nomadland. Very cool that that was what ended up getting Best Picture. Totally awkward ending, though. Absolutely awkward ending by mixing mm-hmm. up the order. And clearly they thought, and people have covered this, as you said, they thought Chadwick Boseman was going to get Best Actor and wanted the night to end on that. And instead it was like, you know how I felt worse for this is Questlove, who was basically the DJ rather than an orchestra for the evening. I like that. But it was announced Anthony Hopkins, best actor. And they accepted it on his behalf because he wasn't there. And then they threw it to Questlove, who's like, oh, um, I've got to wrap this whole night up in three (laughs) seconds on like a colossal F up that wasn't my fault. So that was a little that was a little awkward. Well, and I did just see today for the record, as we're taping this, that something came out, did not read it, just saw it in my timeline. So I apologize if I'm getting something wrong, that they didn't want Anthony Hopkins to do his acceptance speech over Zoom. Yeah. And that's why he was then left out completely. So that awkwardness that you're talking about right there, and that, of course, I did see Phil at my timeline, not to mention going to other websites the day after the Oscars and seeing stories like, the 14 most uncomfortable moments on the red carpet or during the ceremony. I was like, that's why I don't watch the Oscars. I don't, I don't need it, Josh. All right. Well, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll always report back to you. Sam and I each year will report back to you in this manner. Yeah, I love it. Sam and Josh explain the Oscars to Adam. It's our recurring bit here on Film Spotting. Since we are talking Oscars, we might as well share the results of our most recent Film Spotting poll. We asked listeners which of the 2021 Best Picture nominees would get your vote. So if the Academy was Film Spotting listeners, who would win the Oscar? Josh, can you guess the winner? It was not Nomadland. Right. And there's a pretty good hint if you consider the winner of the Golden Brick Award, right? I mean, if yep. if the Golden Brick winner is going to be also up for Best Picture, which first time, I believe, that's happened, yeah. right? Yeah. Pretty good chance that's the movie the listeners are going to go for. Yeah. 35% of the vote going to Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal. It did win the listener vote for the 2020 Golden Brick Award. Our Overlooked Film of the Year won the overall prize as the Golden Brick winner. And... I guess we can say it's definitely the least overlooked film to I think ever so. win yes. the award. I'm sure that's an accurate <laughs> statement, though, as we've talked about, certainly end of year in December, it's not as if in this crazy year, it really seems like Sound of Metal is a film that 
everyone is seeing and is talking about. No, I think that's fair. I mean, I've been doing a couple talks this month and around the Oscars, and in each one, when I bring up Sound of Metal, it was kind of alarming how few people had seen it. Not, you know, subject matter, maybe that's not surprising, but it's right there on Amazon Prime, and I know they've been pushing it a ton. So, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised more people haven't seen it. Hopefully, the two wins did get two wins, I believe. Editing and sound um, might help raise its profile a little bit. Yeah, if somehow you are listening to this and haven't heard us talk about this movie or urge you to see it, I will just say again, the only one of the Best Picture nominees that was in my top five films of the year and definitely my pick to win the Oscar. Alas, I don't have a vote. And since I don't watch, I don't think the Academy is going to be inviting me to vote anytime soon. Nomadland did come in second in the poll, 24%. In the middle of the pack, Minari, 11%. Promising Young Woman, 9%. Judas and the Black Messiah, 8%. There at the bottom, Mank, only 5% of the vote. The Trial of the Chicago 7 got 4%. And finally, The Father, 3% of the vote. Any final Oscar tidbits, thoughts, nuggets, before we finally, now at the end of April, entering May, put the 2020 movie year behind us once and for all? No, no, I'm good. I don't, I don't think you could take any more, Adam, so I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> Later in the show, an actor and director who won zero competitive Oscars in his long storied career, Orson Welles. We will talk about his 1947 noir, The Lady from Shanghai, starring Rita Hayworth. It is the next movie in our 40s noir marathon. But first, our review of Together Together, in which Ed Cedar Rapids-Helms tries his hand at a slightly quieter comic register. Why are you doing this alone? Because I am alone. I'm in this chapter of my life that feels like it should be over, but it's not. It's just on a loop. It's weird to be perceived as hopeless in this moment when I'm actually incredibly hopeful. Why are you alone? I don't think being alone is a bad thing. So are you going to have the baby shower? (laughs) I just want to say thank you for doing this with me, and I also apologize for everyone I know. Is that what this is like? Like donating an organ? I don't know. I've never donated an organ before. We should have better boundaries. Are we friends? Aren't we? I think that if we are, in order for this to work, we shouldn't be. Together Together drops us right in the midst of the movie's very complicated central relationship. We're eavesdropping on an interview session between Matt, played by Ed Helms, a 40-something single man who's about to have a baby, and Anna, Patty Harrison, whom he's looking to hire as a gestational surrogate to help him reach that goal. If I'm following things correctly, it would be his sperm, a donor's egg, and her womb. Writer-director Nicole Beckwith gives the pair some prickly back-and-forth dialogue exchanges, accentuated by Alex Summers' lightly punctuating piano score that establishes Matt as something of a control freak and Anna as a sardonically distanced participant in the proceedings. They have chemistry, but it's not romantic, nor is it really parental. Together Together goes on to explore the exact nature of this oddly intimate relationship. It's a unique, modest movie examining a singular slice of modern life, Adam, and I'm curious what you made of it. Did that opening sequence grab you right away, or was this a movie you slowly warmed up to? Or maybe you didn't go for it at all. I went for it, and I would say I warmed up to it pretty quickly. It's a tough question to answer, actually, because that opening scene is one that gives you some familiar territory 
and you feel like you're going to be heading down a certain path with this movie. But then there are those sparks of of chemistry and really more it's that sense of humor that Patty Harrison's Anna shows and the way she pushes back on him that surprises you. And as the movie gets going, there are more of those surprises. Matt Zoller cites, I saw the opening line of his review at RogerEbert.com, and he said it very well, as he always does. He said, together together is not just smart, it's sneaky smart. And I think that's what we're both getting at here. It seems just based on the premise, if you know what it is going in, and based on that opening scene to an extent, that this could mostly be a cringe fest. (laughs) All of its humor coming mostly at the expense of its characters. It's going to be amplifying and exaggerating the awkwardness that inherently comes from a situation like this, something so intimate shared between total strangers, strangers who are also at very different stages of their lives and who have very different experiences and needs. Obviously, they're coming to this situation wanting very different things out of it. I thought for sure I was in for an array of hilarious misunderstandings and uncomfortable conversations. Here's where Ed Helms says something inappropriate about her body, but he didn't really mean it. And this is where he does something really stupid at the ultrasound, etc., etc. And there are some of those jokes, to be sure. And there are some of those scenes. And they don't all land. The mocking of the hippy-dippy birth class teacher. Though even in that scene, I think both the actors get at something real and something genuine. They express something there by the end of it. But you do realize pretty quickly that Beckwith not only empathizes with Matt and Anna, she respects them. And that respect is actually central to one of my favorite scenes in the movie that comes early on, the one where I knew I was finally kind of on the same wavelength as this movie. And it's the first therapy session they have where they're talking to Tig Notaro. But before I get into that, Josh, I want to know a little bit more about how you felt about the movie. Yeah, I, re- I really like Tig Notaro in this. She's very funny. I-, I think this movie, yeah, I had a similar experience. It snuck up on me too. And Matt's right in describing it that way. I I would encourage people to stick with it, even if you do really like that opening scene, because it's not only the turns it makes, but I was worried about a different thing. Uh, I agree some of the humor, you know, you can see where it might be going. It could be a terrible movie and it mostly avoids that. I was also worried as I saw the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes, was this going to be mostly about Matt, the Ed Helms character? Because I think a lot of the early scenes are, are, even when they're in them together, kind of devoted more to his experience. And, you know, Helms being the bigger star, I wasn't all that familiar with Patty Harrison before this. I thought, oh boy, this this could be really strange if it's going to be mostly about, you know, not just because he's the man in this situation, mm-hmm. but w- one thing we come to understand as the movie gets more expansive is how equally they're sharing in this experience, even yeah. if she has signed up for a potentially limited time frame with it. Um, but it does take a turn eventually and becomes this more expansive exploration of loneliness. I think it encompasses much more than just this present adventure they're on together in terms of, of parenting, uh, or, or bringing a child into the world. It becomes really a wider consideration of loneliness. 
and starts to balance things out more towards Anna. You know, we learn more about Mm -hmm. her background, more about her story. Most importantly, Beckwith opens things up so that it makes more room for Harrison's performance because I think she is really great in this. So good. So good. And and Helms is good too. As I said, it, you know, it requires something a little quieter from him, but he's also funny. But really Harrison, it, she shocked me because She's clearly communicating this emotional detachment I described, but also gives us sly little tells. Like when she's when she's feeling some sort of emotion that she wants to push away. And then we get these the smartness and the sardonic asides our defense mechanisms we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we really get to to experience more of her. Uh, and they make a nice balance, right? He he could use some of her chill. Um, even at the same time, she kind of learns to put a little more of herself into this experience, even if, again, it is going to be a limited experience. Um, she begins to invest in it a little bit more. So I was really relieved when the when the movie made that shift, yeah. which I think was confirmed. We're not going to give it away, but I loved the final shot of this film. Me too. I won't say why, just that it re- relates directly to this sort of um, the balance the movie is trying to strike between uh, each person's experience. There's a lot to react to there, and it is very hard when the best thing about a good movie is the ending. It is. And I agree. We obviously do not want to give it away. And I know some people are listening and now expecting us to give it away because that's what critics do. They say they won't spoil it. And then they do. I promise we won't. No, but I'm going to say this, Josh, about the ending and why this movie is worth watching and sticking with to get to that point. It's one that seems to me not only a pretty bold choice, but even with the way it is ultimately framed, it's an ending that that does honor each of their individual experiences in that moment. And there is something about it that provides a sense of catharsis and a sense of closure without it actually feeling like it's overly resolved. Mm. That's a real trick mm-hmm. when a movie can pull that off, when when it's still leaving open possibilities. And there's there's that right kind of ambiguity, the kind of ambiguity that that comes with life, where there's a sense of joy there's a sense of pain you you can't you can't distinguish them in the moment because they are so intertwined and again for a movie to pull that off for a performance here in one case in particular to pull that off is really remarkable yeah it's incredibly moving i, I was and it, it kind of it snuck up on me as well even though the movie had already proven that it was going to surprise me um i wasn't ready for that that final shot no i wasn't and i agree that you realize Eventually, it's going to be certainly focused on the both of them, even though Matt maybe gets a little bit more time right away. I actually thought Beckwith was maybe up to something that I had mixed feelings about because on one hand, I thought, okay, this isn't going to work. It's going to make these characters just the sum of these situations and their interactions with each other, which I don't really want because I don't think they're going to feel like real people. But at the same time, it would be really bold if a movie actually did that. And what I'm referring to is early on, you don't see these characters existing in the world outside of their interactions with each other. Yeah, I don't remember exactly when the first scene is where we finally see just Anna's life or Matt life separately, but they are together together. I thought it was really going to be literal with its title in the sense that the whole movie would be about these two people who otherwise wouldn't really probably cross paths with each other and interact having to be together 
all the time. The movie would only focus on those moments. And again, I was conflicted because I didn't know if it would give them enough room to actually be real, fully realized characters, while it would also be kind of formally audacious. And I would respect that. But it ultimately does, even though they spend most of the movie sharing scenes, it does provide that space. And I think the the best scenes in the film are the ones with just the two of them. Uh, I think mm-hmm. about midway through, this is at this point, they've, they've definitely grown closer into this, you know, unique relationship. And so she's at his house, looks in the nursery and sees that, um, again, kind of control freak. He's got about 50 um, paint swatches up on the wall of the nursery. He's trying to decide which mm-hmm. is just the perfect color. And we get this scene of them just, taking one swatch off the wall at a time and talking about that. And it's just a really lovely um, sort of montage of exchanges where we see Anna again, taking a small step towards being emotionally invested and Mm -hmm. Matt relinquishing a little bit of control. And I think there are a number of Beckwith gives a number of nicely scripted um, conversations between the two of them that are quiet, that are touching. And as we said, just so delicately performance by, by these stars who are really perfectly in sync. Yeah. That scene with the swatches in the nursery at his house is the other standout scene in the movie for me, because there is some nice conversation. There's some nice quippy back and forth, but then it becomes visual. It becomes just about these two characters having this moment together and kind of feeling the situation out, but ultimately coming together. And it's fun to watch. Emphasis on watch. You get to see them kind of bond through this interaction. And I was going to go back to the scene I mentioned with Tig Notaro. The first therapy scene, it's actually the moment after it that I probably most appreciated the button, but he's being respectful or walking that line where he's trying to be really respectful, but is kind of stepping on her toes a little bit. There's a lot of boundary crossing throughout the whole movie. He wants to make sure, though, that what he's saying is something she's really comfortable with. And when they walk out of that session, he pulls out a candy bar and takes a bite of it. And it seems so odd. It kind of comes out of nowhere. And he takes a deep breath and he smiles. And then he explains to her that he and his ex used to leave couples therapy and they'd eat chocolate together and enjoy the day and then continue not sleeping together. <laughs> and it's it's a good joke, but it also instantly just that little bit of physical interaction mixed with some good dialogue makes him a real person mm. with with history with pain. Yeah. We don't need to know anything more about the X. There's no further exposition or backstory. Just that moment tells us everything we need to know, including that, like most of us, he's a creature of habit. Yeah, it's really good. And it also establishes, you know, the growing intimacy between them because that's something you don't share casually. You know, this is evidence of something he's going to let her in on this experience. Um, what I loved about Tignataro as the counselor is she's so ambivalent and non-committal, yes. which I know, I know you're supposed to be, you know, the the neutral party as the counselor, but she's she prioritizes giving them their space and freedom to such a degree that both of them are absolutely paralyzed with possibility. It's like they, yeah. they come out of there just more confused because she doesn't really offer them anything. And I, I think Nataro plays that that really well. I think that's a great point, Josh, because how many times have we seen in movies that are covering similar terrain and we have a couple 
speaking to a therapist, do you see the therapist ultimately take a side or get in on the comedy? Sure. You know, and start to reveal kind of which which of the two people they really do side with a little bit or they can't help but react to something that seems insensitive or offensive that the other person says. Dick Nataro really does play it completely straight. Yeah. And and that's where all the humor, I think, ultimately does come from. You mentioned Patty Harrison, and I wasn't familiar with her at all. And I feel a little bit bad about the fact that I'm really not going to go overboard praising Ed Helms. And it's not because he doesn't give a really good performance. I think he does. I just also think that I kind of want to watch Patty Harrison now in everything. And I didn't know her at all, was not familiar with any of her previous work. But some of the magic of this movie, what ultimately does make it work, what it overcomes, maybe not just with some good writing and some good directing choices, it also only really can be pulled off if you have two really capable performers. Sure. I mean, I don't know how many people you know, and I only can think of one off the top of my head, person in my life who went through a similar situation, having a baby with a surrogate. And obviously I wasn't there every day. I didn't hear all the stories about how things were going. They didn't share the same town or even the same state. So there's a difference too. But nevertheless, they were not as involved in each other's lives as these two characters are. I'm guessing someone can write in and tell me I'm crazy. And this movie actually really gets at an authentic experience for most people who go through this. But I'm guessing most of the time, Situations with surrogates don't result in the type of intimate friendships that we see here in Together Together. And so there are a lot of points along the way where you are questioning how believable the movie is, where you can't help but love Ed Helms because he's Ed Helms, but also you can't believe how far he's going and how much he seems to be encroaching on her territory and crossing those boundaries. But it does work, and you do put that aside ultimately because of their chemistry and because they make it believable. They make these situations believable. And I don't know how to describe it when you just see a face on screen and you want to keep looking at that face. You want to keep seeing her reactions. You want to see her choices. She's always making a choice that just catches you a little bit off guard. And there is a real charisma. There's a real magnetism to Harrison that I thought was striking. Yeah, she's giving you so much. I mean, she's very funny for one thing. And then you mm-hmm. start to realize, like I said, how how the humor is a defense mechanism with which hints at something else that you can also see and the other things she's giving you in her expression. So yeah, incredibly talented and it's a great performance. I I had the same thoughts. You know, I think you believe all of this is happening because you believe in these two characters. Mm-hmm. I don't have personal experience with this, but I did think many times this cannot be how this process works. There's right. like the legal implications alone, I have to imagine, are way more complicated than this. But as I said, you believe in the characters, so you believe in the situation. It's it's Beckwith is starting with the characters. Uh, you mm-hmm. feel like that's, uh, as you said at the top, this could have been a horribly awkward situation comedy and instead it's a at first i think it's a single character study and it becomes a joint rich character study that happens to be in this heightened situation i should note also about beckwith um this is her second film and i actually saw her debut a number of years ago back at sundance very different movie stockholm pennsylvania it stars saoirse ronan as uh, a young woman who had been kidnapped as a child 
raised by her captors and then returned when she was older to her birth family. So I remember being a little conflicted about it. I I, I think I just wrote something briefly about being dog tooth without that same kind of bite. But it's hmm. it's maybe of interest for people to track down if they're you know if they really like together together or they're huge Saoirse Ronan fans. It's uh, Stockholm, Pennsylvania. Together Together is currently playing in limited release, and you can see it on VOD May 11th. Our 40s Noir Marathon continues when we come back with The Lady from Shanghai. It's Orson Welles' love letter, or maybe a hate letter, to his Mm -hmm. co-star and then wife, Rita Hayworth. Plus, the film spotting poll keeps to crime, asking you to pick your favorite movie crime boss of the last 20 years. Stay with us. Comes a change in weather Comes a change of heart And who knows when The rain will start So I beg you Please don't love me But if you love me Then don't take your lips and God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And Eve was weak and loosed the raven on the world. And the raven was called sin. Said the raven was called sin. And a happy early Mother's Day to you, Mrs. White. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're currently in the middle of a 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. Josh, we have revisited Taxi Driver, Rocky, All the President's Men, and Network. And with Mother's Day coming next weekend, we thought we would pair the next film in the series, going more obscure, not a Best Picture nominee, Chantel Ackerman's News from Home, with our top five 70s movie moms. Now, this like everything we talked about regarding the Oscars before, is news to me. I think Sam just snuck this in here. I don't know if you signed off on it. I did not. Are you on board with Sam's plan? I am absolutely on board. I think it's an inspired idea. But of course, we all know there is still the dreaded Kempenar presidential veto hanging over our heads. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Which I fear, but I think it's great. I love it. Well, here's the thing about the veto. I don't pull it out if I don't have an alternate idea to suggest. And I don't. (laughs) And I actually really love it, though it'll be interesting to think about how we form our lists and what the criteria is, because as I think about some of the more memorable, and that's really probably what matters, right? How memorable they are, how good they are as characters, not how good they are as moms. And that better be the case for their sakes, because there's a few Mrs. Whites that I can think of Josh, not maybe the most nurturing mothers. Well, this already shows why it's a brilliant idea on Sam's part is all the different avenues we have to wrestle with just to get started on this list. So yeah. see, we're, we're heading in a good direction. Piper Laurie, of course, as Mrs. White from Brian De Palma's Carrie. Last question on this, Josh. I can tell you're you're all in. There's no going back. Are we too limited? Are there enough amazing 70s movie moms? Yes, there always are. This is always your concern. You're always so worried that the well is going to be dry. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's when you just got to pull something out of you, you, you know where. So, okay. We can do it. I think we can. 
Ackerman's News from Home also makes for a very good Mother's Day pairing. It was the follow-up to the Belgian filmmaker's celebrated 1975 film, Jean Dielman. Jean Dielman, a candidate, obviously, for <laughs> oh, our yes. top five movie moms, but maybe maybe we have to put aside, put into the Pantheon, or at least do we put Jean Dielman in the penalty box for this list? Yeah, yeah. Just to make things a little easier, let's do that. Yeah. That movie was the great discovery of our overlooked auteurs marathon last year. And as distinctive formally as it is, news from home might even be more avant-garde. We haven't watched it yet, but it features long, still shots of New York City circa the summer of 76, the narrations taken from letters that Ackerman's mother sent her when Ackerman was living abroad in the city in the early 70s. I own the Criterion Collection edition of it, but have not pulled it off the shelf, have been wanting to see this movie for quite some time. Even more excited to see it, obviously, after reveling in the masterpiece that is Jean Dielman. So, the 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series, partly an excuse for me just to finally watch News From Home. I'm excited. Yep, for for sure. Me too. Now, speaking of Sam, he did his research. He wanted to clarify a few things here. There has been some confusion about what year exactly News From Home had its release because it was shot in the summer of 76, but it looks like it might not have made it to theaters until 77. Still, the Criterion Collection and also Letterboxd, they label it a 76 film, while IMDb and other places listed as a 77. We're going to stick with 76. Um, it just, you know, makes sense to be part of this series. I love putting it in the mix. Mm-hmm. As you said, a blind spot for me, too. And since there's some ambiguity there, we feel like we've got the doors open to name it a 76 film. So we're going to do that. And as you said, Adam, there's a Criterion disc, and it's also available on the Criterion channel. What did we say earlier? There's no going back on our top five for next week. There's no going back on News From Home as a 76 movie. Yeah, we don't want to hear we it. Are, we are in. No. Next week, then, the top five 70s movie moms. Can't wait to hear some of your picks and Ackerman's News From Home. If you have a 70s movie mom you do not want us to overlook, you want to make sure we send a card to, send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at Larson on film. Also on next week's show, it'll be Massacre Theater, where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you did miss it, here's a bit of our last massacre, which thankfully, beautifully featured the talents of one Michael Phillips. It ain't big enough for cattlemen and homesteaders, and it never will be. Now clear out of here. All right, Bean. We're going back to build our fences. If you do, you better build coffins along with them. I don't think that scene's the most obscure movie we've ever massacred in this show's 16-plus-year history, but it's close, Josh. How are those entries coming in? Rolling? Yeah, Just rolling yeah, in? You can, you can count them on one hand. <laughs> Still, as I said, if we got Michael Phillips to do that, it was all worth it. Yeah. What do we say about film spotting? We're, we're a niche show. So <laughs> we'll just go with that. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You do have until Monday, May 3rd. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce on next week's show. Quick plug for our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Right now, it's part one of their one wedding and a funeral pairing. Nice one, Genevieve Kosky. It's going to be the new Shiva baby, which is available via VOD that they're pairing with Jonathan Demme's Rachel Getting Married. Top tier, 
Demi in my book and Shiva Baby Adam. I don't know. Might this be, I'll have to look into this. Might this be a golden brick candidate we have to catch up on? I'm not yeah. sure if the director is is relatively new. I think so. I had the same thought, Josh. So we will have to check the scorecard there, look at IMDb and determine whether or not it qualifies. But I'm curious to see it. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a host of benefits, including ad-free episodes, you get early show downloads, and you get maybe most significantly, monthly bonus episodes. We actually have yet to tape this month's bonus, but I think we're both excited to talk about it. It's a 70s blind spotting edition of our film spotting family bonus. We're going to talk about Hal Ashby's shampoo from 1975. You can can kind of set aside Warren Beatty. Julie Christie and Goldie Hawn, I think I care about a little bit more. Oh, we will spend some time on the supporting female cast of this film. I am so thrilled. I have to say the film spotting family members at Patreon, they're back on my good side, Adam. After somehow choosing not to vote for the Anthony Hopkins film, Magic, where he's like <laughs> yeah. a murderous yeah. ventriloquist or they something like down. that. They let us down. Voted one in another direction. I am so grateful that they chose Shampoo because this is one I always knew I needed to watch mm-hmm. and thought I knew what it was about. And I think maybe that's why I never took the time to get to it. And I had such fun with this movie. So I can't wait to talk about it with you. And less someone listening thinks, why are these guys obsessed with the seventies? Do they only talk about movies that came out when they were born? No, that's it. That's, that's not the case, but we are doing the seven from 76 series. If you haven't been following along, we started with nine from 99, eight from 84. You can sense a pattern. We also do our annual film spotting madness, March Madness style movie bracket. And coming up in 2022 is Film Spotting Madness best of the 70s. We just crowned the best film of the 80s. Again, you can see the pattern. So we're trying to do some homework. We're trying to see some of the movies that are in contention to make that final list of 64. Hal Ashby going to be represented for sure with at least one title, probably two and possibly three. And you can make the case for four of his movies making the list, but the last detail, probably a lock Harold and Maude, probably a lock shampoos. One of them that I know a lot of people would put in the mix. And then there's being there as well from 1979. So if you want to hear that conversation about how Ashby shampoo subscribe to the film spotting family over on Patreon, you can get that extra episode. We also do monthly trivia spotting events. It's our 10th one coming up. We're calling it Trivia Spotting 10 to Yuma. No, it's not an all-Westerns edition. <laughs> that would that would go even worse for me than trivia normally does, Josh. <laughs> yeah, probably me too. But we're just trying to come up with a clever movie tie-in. 310 to Yuma is the first one that came to mind. Trivia Spotting 10 to Yuma. Why not? It's Saturday, May 15th. As of this taping, I don't know about by the time people hear this, but as of this taping, there's about 15 tickets left maybe Josh. And these events are a blast and we haven't touched on this yet here on the show, but last trivia spotting. Oh, please. Just a couple of weeks ago. Please don't get into it. Here's, here's all I'm going to do because I know at some point we both did something embarrassing. I'm going to just be positive and I'm going to mention that for the third time, 
the amazing Mariah Gates, mm. captained her team to victory. Mm-hmm. By all accounts, she didn't even really need any team members. She just knew all the answers. And there was a lightning round that was about the Oscars. And Thomas Todd, our quizmaster family member, had this amazing little game in mind called One Nominated or Snubbed, which I understand Steven Soderbergh must have been lurking in our trivia spotting event because they basically played that very same game during the event. But I finally didn't embarrass myself in a lightning round, actually was the runner up in that round. But Mariah not only did win, Thomas just continued to give her all the remaining yes. candidates. What was it, Josh? Like 20 or 25 movie titles? Oh, it, it just kept out, going. Kept without going. hesitation. No. Said whether the movie won, was nominated for Best Picture, or was snubbed completely. No hesitation. It was it was like watching Jordan in his prime. <laughs> She's the GOAT. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, so thank you for staying positive. I'm not going to get into it either. I, I'm just curious. I, are you at the point where the embarrassment has faded away from how you and I usually perform myself in particular. I apologize yeah. to all of my teammates for, my, for, for what happened last session. Are you ready for another, uh, another round or do you need what we got like about two weeks yet before you feel like you can face the cameras again? Cause I'm now, not quite ready. I've resigned myself to being entertainment value for our listeners. Mm. And if they can feel superior to us and they should, mm-hmm. and they can mock us relentlessly, then I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, that, that's a lot easier when you don't single-handedly cost your your team the championship. <laughs> that is true, Josh. You <laughs> see, you shouldn't have said that because I couldn't remember. Oh. It was so long ago, I couldn't remember. Stay what positive. You did that was embarrassing. Stay positive. Oh no, oh no. Now it's now it's come back with a vengeance, <sighs> and now we have to share it. To your credit, your team was remarkable. You not only gave Mariah and her team a run for their money. Mm-hmm. You tied her. It mm-hmm. came down to a tiebreaker. Yes. You could have forded the three-peat. Yes. And it came down to a tiebreaker. And that tiebreaking question was... Wait, wait, wait. Well, you got to set the stage, <laughs> which meant team captains go up against each other. That's right. So me and Mariah. Yes. I have no lifelines, no help. That's right. Go on. Yes. And the question is usually a number in these tiebreaking scenarios. So it's not really expected that anybody's going to get it dead on, but it's just whoever's closest. And in this case, the question, if I'm recalling correctly, was something about how fast the Velociraptor was clocked at. T-Rex, T-Rex, Adam. Oh, a T-Rex. Okay, thank you. I'll never forget this. In Jurassic Park. So we'll pause there for a second so everyone listening who wasn't part of the event Mm -hmm. can think about it. Obviously, at some point in Jurassic Park, that number is mentioned, how many miles per hour the T-Rex moves. Yes. No help. You had to write down your answer, submit it. Mariah had to submit hers. And let's go with this first, Josh. Let's start with the answer. Let's start with the correct answer. Let's start with the correct answer. Let's recreate the whole abomination, Adam. I I love it, but you'll have to remind me what was the right answer. Was it like 47 or 56 or something? The right answer is not emblazoned in my mind. What is emblazoned in my mind is what I moronically (laughs) said, said. but I believe you're correct. It's somewhere in the 30 to 40 range. Yeah. Miles per hour. And Josh Larson submitted what? 208 miles per hour. So good. 
So at this I mean, point, uh, let's clarify as if it's not obvious. Mariah won. I forget what she said. Something yeah. that was at least a hundred miles per hour closer. At this point, I would just like to apologize to my teammates, Andy, yeah. Connor, Paul, it. Jared, Steve, <laughs> Jonathan, hmm. Mike, or was it Mick? Sorry. I mean, I can't even get that answer correct. So, but also Rebecca, Adelaide, I know they were there. All of Look you. Look at you. They all deserved the championship. And I, I just absolutely blew it. So if this is well, the sort of thing you would like to experience, mm-hmm. <laughs> become a film spotting family member at Patreon. You know, if you feel that bad. You could pay for the shipping and send them a film spotting t-shirt, Josh. I feel so terrible. I mean, you don't understand how badly I feel. I love it. Patreon.com slash film spotting. Spoiler alert, James Cagney there with the famous final lines from 1949's White Heat. Director Raul Walsh's Gangster Noir is the final film in our 40s noir marathon. We will get to that in a couple of weeks, but we're using Cagney and White Heat as the prompt for our current film spotting poll, which asks you, what is your favorite 21st century movie crime boss performance? Cagney's performance as Cody Jarrett regarded as one of his best and most influential. The crime boss character itself certainly has been one of the major movie archetypes, at least since the 1930s. There have been a lot of memorable ones over the years. We decided to narrow it down a little bit and just stick to this century. So, Josh, as we go through the candidates here, we'll play ourselves a little one nominated or snubbed. Alas, I don't have the right answer, so someone else will have to fact check us later. But let's see how we do. Your options, Daniel Day-Lewis, Bill the Butcher, Gangs of New York. Nominated. I'm going to say nominated as well. I'm going to play a Mariah Gates I'm just going to go. spit something out. Unfor- okay. You know, I won't be correct like she is, but. Denzel Washington as Frank Lucas, an American gangster. Snubbed. I think he was snubbed too. We're, we're two for two, at least with each other. Now, this one's a tough one for me. Joe Pesci, Russell Buffalino, and Scorsese's The Irishman. He was nominated, Josh. Nominated. Okay. Jack Nicholson, Frank Costello in Martin Scorsese's The Departed. I'll do this one. I also think nominated. Snubbed. We're splitting. Really? We're splitting. Okay. Okay. What about Jackie Weaver as Janine Smurf Cody in Animal Kingdom? Nominated. Yeah, Jackie Weaver. That's really what kind of brought her to our attention, that film and that nomination. And then this one has to be a snub, right? Rafe Fines as Harry Waters and Martin McDonough's in Bruges. Yeah, I'm going to go snubbed. Okay. So the only one we disagreed about was Nicholson in The Departed. All right. Go ahead. I'm going to look this up. I'll riff. You'll look it up. And I think I think you're going to be right, Josh. In early voting, maybe a little surprising, Nicholson's Costello is in fourth place behind Joe Pesci, behind Ray Fiennes, and maybe not so surprisingly behind the greatest actor of this generation, Daniel Day-Lewis. So Jack Nicholson as Frank Costello in The Departed getting snubbed in our poll Did he, in fact, get snubbed by the Academy? According to IMDb.com, he was. uh, The Departed won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing. Nominated was Mark Wahlberg for Best Performance by Actor in a Supporting Role. I would have not guessed that in a million years. But yeah, it turns out 
Nicholson was not one of the nominees. Okay, well, see how much fun these little games are? You can vote now on that poll at filmspotting.net. He was smart to carry a gun traveling alone in the park. But if you knew you had the gun in your bag, why throw away the bag? I meant for you to find it. I, I don't know how to shoot. It's easy. You just pull the trigger. Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth in an early scene in 1947's The Lady from Shanghai. It's next up in our 40s noir marathon. So far, we've had William Wyler's The Letter. That one starred Betty Davis. This Gun for Hire with Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd. Otto Preminger's Laura with Gene Tierney. And then Edgar G. Ulmer's low-budget detour with the wonderfully terrifying and Savage. Adam, this is a marathon I kind of don't want to end when you go through those mm. titles. Especially with some of those performances. You just mentioned some of those leading ladies or femme fatales. Even if you did have disparaging things to say about Ronica Lake, we will get to Rita I mean, Hayworth here in a moment. Come on, even you, if we start ranking the performances so far yeah. in this marathon, she's not going to be at the top. No, she probably isn't, but that is a good tease, Josh. We will conclude this marathon not only with White Heat in a couple of weeks, but we will share our Best of the Marathon awards. We will see how we do, in fact, rank those femme fatales. Focusing on some lesser-known titles, obviously, with this marathon, we're filling in some blind spots. The big draw for both of us was seeing The Lady from Shanghai because it was Orson Welles, but I also haven't seen a lot of Rita Hayworth, Josh. And the story goes that he only offered to make The Lady from Shanghai because he was in desperate need of money for an over-budget stage production. He offered to make the movie for free and star in it if Columbia's Harry Cohn wired him 50 grand. This movie, coming in 1947, follows the legendary critical success of 1941's Citizen Kane, the legendary studio meddling of 1942's The Magnificent Ambersons, and 1946's The Stranger, another kind of noir, and a modest box office success. The Lady from Shanghai also suffered through some notorious studio editing, of course, and reshoots. It's rather infamous for its confounding plot. We will see how confused we were, Josh. Wells plays Michael O'Hara, the oh-so-Irish Michael O'Hara, a drifter and sailor. O'Hara, O'Hara, Adam. Come on. <laughs> well done, well done. Who gets caught up with Hayworth's beautiful Elsa, her much older husband, played by Everett Sloan, and the husband's law partner, George, who comes up with a scheme to fake his own death with O'Hara's help. And if you thought doing an Orson Welles impression as Michael O'Hara was fun, how about doing the impression of George from this movie? Oh, boy. Josh, give me your best target <laughs> practice. That's beyond me. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of places to start. I want to know what you thought of Rita Hayworth, and I want to know if two really great standout visual sequences can make you forgive everything about a movie that maybe doesn't quite work. Ooh, that's the question with the lady from Shanghai, isn't it? It is. And I'm curious to hear what two you would say. Um, the finale, obviously, the the Hall of Mirrors at yep. the abandoned carnival, the con confrontational climax. I'm guessing the other one you're thinking of is the aquarium, possibly? It is. Okay. It is. Now, we'll talk about another I like a lot, but I think the aquarium is really great. Well, let me ask real quickly, is the other one the saline montage when they first take off and um, also good okay also good but no it's when george pitches his scheme to him 
and they keep getting higher and higher on the cliffs oh, yeah. overlooking yeah, yeah, yeah. the water. Yeah. Yeah. That's good too. Um, and there's a particular, there's a single shot I want to call out. So yes. already we are clearly praising this movie for its form <laughs> over its, I, I function isn't the right word, but uh, over its story, over its, its meaning. And I guess that's, mm-hmm. that's where I would like to start because what I will always think of the lady from Shanghai as first is a very complicated example of one thing we have not encountered so far in this marathon, but is clearly an element of the film noir genre is when and where misogyny comes into play. Because I think this for me is the first time I really had to ask myself those questions in terms of how it does depict Hayworth's character, Elsa. Um, And it's complicated by the backstory, right? At at this point in the filming, Wells and Hayworth were still married. Uh, From what I understand, basic research I did, it was definitely on the rocks at this point. It had been a couple years by now, but they were still married. And I think the lady from Shanghai, let's just talk about what we see on the screen, not even leave it to the biographers to get to all that other stuff. What you see on the screen is a very queasy love-hate relationship with Hayworth. You see a woman who is irresistible and tantalizing, and then the camera fetishizes her for that. And then eventually, quite literally, I mean, we'll probably end up spoiling this. I think we can. Punishes her. Punishes her. Punishes her for the movie's own obsessions. And so I think this is an important film. I think it has some formal elements that we will obviously spend time on, but I think it is, it's really disturbing as well. And of this marathon, the first one where, where I saw that threat of misogyny, which can be a poisonous part of this femme fatale trope that the genre has really come to the fore. But, but I don't know if it struck you that way. No, I think that's an astute point. And the whole time I was watching this movie, I was thinking about how much I wish I was watching Rita Hayworth in a different noir or working with a different director who, frankly, did better by her just by giving her a more interesting character Mm. and frankly, giving her someone more interesting to play off of. And there is so little heat between the real life (laughs) lovers in this movie that it really does make it a tough watch at times. And it's funny because you almost wonder if it's by design, it's part of that kind of merry prankster approach that Orson Welles takes. And in the midst of making a movie that very clearly is a film noir, he also loves to subvert it and bring an element of humor in that I don't think we've seen, certainly, not only in most noirs, we haven't seen it really at all in this 40s noir marathon. And a good example of it comes in that aquarium sequence. I'll just focus on this part for now, where just as they finally embrace each other, and she has those words that sound like they're taken straight out of kind of a pulpy piece of fiction that would inspire a film noir. She says, take me, take me. And what happens two seconds later, some kids on a field trip at the aquarium (laughs) with some old lady chaperones see them and are spying on them and they completely upend it. And any real heat that could have been happening in that moment, finally they come together. Orson Welles says, nope, nope. It's, It's almost as if maybe by design, Orson Welles was having some fun with us by not giving us that release and actually trying to make it all about the repression of sexual desire because there's no passion between them at all. And 
While that might be kind of fun to think about, in the moment of watching The Lady from Shanghai, all you're wishing for, at least all I was wishing for, was something a little juicier for Rita Hayworth to sink her teeth into. Sure, absolutely. The screenplay was by Wells, but he was adapting a novel uh, from Sherwood King. So maybe that's where some of those noir tropes came from. But another great visual moment in that sequence, in the aquarium sequence, Adam, I'm not sure if it's the exact moment you're talking about, but did you notice? So for most of this, they're in silhouette standing before a series of tanks where we can see more clearly the sea creatures behind them. There's a moment where I think it's an eel, something Mm -hmm. like that looks like it is about to chomp on Rita Hayworth's head. Yeah, and it's not an accident or it it's a happy not, accident. Yeah, that is it's exactly. Yeah, to your point about you have to, with someone like Wells, a genius like Wells, you have to check yourself and say, mm-hmm. okay, wh- why might he be doing this beyond what my initial impression is? Even so, if the subversion was an attempt, I don't know that it ultimately works. And, and I do think in Wells' defense, you know, as we implied, studio took the film from him, recut it before release. I think what... One of the things that really suffers from that, the disjointedness in the narrative, is that we never get the rhythm of their relationship. So part of it might be just an issue of chemistry, mm-hmm. you know, that these two, what may, I don't know, they were on the outs already, whatever, is going on off screen. But it's also the fact that the editing of the film itself really never gives their characters a chance to connect. No. And that's maybe out of out of Wells' yeah. hands. But I was going to say. It's an Orson Welles movie, and I think I read somewhere today that the original cut of it was two and a half hours long. Okay. We're watching an hour and a half yeah. movie. Who knows what Orson Welles' actual vision for this film right. possibly was? Nobody knows because no one's actually seen the footage. And I'm glad I want to go back to what you said about Hayworth because in her defense, and I I, I need to see more of her, I, her, you know, one of her more iconic performances in Gilda, which I have seen, and, you know, I don't know even though it's iconic that that movie uses her as well as it possibly could have. But here, absolutely, you're right, that any sort of intrigue or interest we have in Elsa comes from what she is able to bring to it. Even even in a line reading, you know, I think of early on when she says something to him about, you need more than luck in Shanghai. She she not only gives that the noir, hard-boiled mm-hmm. kick we expect, but also this pathos underneath it. And you can see how much richer of a character Elsa could have been, how Mm -hmm. much richer Hayworth could have made her if she had been given the opportunity. And we just don't get that level of dimensionality. Uh, I think partly it's because of, if you think of Wells films like Touch of Evil or or even Confidential Report slash Mr. Arkadin, you know, those are rife with these grotesque close-ups of the characters. And we get that here in um, yes. especially Bannister, played by Everett Sloan, and uh, and George Grisby, played by Glenn Anders. And we almost get like a, a the positive variation of that when it comes to Elsa, these repeated scenes of her bathing on the rocks yeah. or diving into the bay. It, it's not that it's grotesque. It's obviously beautiful. But it's also not allowing her to be human. It's distancing the humanity in different directions of both of those characters. And I think mm-hmm. that's where Rita Hayworth just didn't stand a chance. Now, I'll accuse this movie of doing a lot of leering, but can I name that one shot, which even I couldn't resist? <laughs> Maybe yeah. I'm just weak. No, you can. But, you know, Josh, I did want to say. Yeah. Maybe slightly defending Wells a little bit when you talk about those sequences on the water in particular. And let's just be clear. No, nobody in the history of the world 
has ever jumped into the sea and come out looking the way Rita Hayworth comes out. Her hair, her makeup, everything about her. But he also does give us those glimpses during that sequence of Grisby watching her. Mm -hmm. So there is an aspect of, it's not just the audience kind of playing voyeur. It's a man who's always leering at her. Totally fair. And, I, and I'm and i glad you make that distinction because Grisby is also in the, also in the shot I want to mention. So this is later, I think it might be the same day, he's on the boat and he's kind of at a lower level and he has a cigarette lit and he's holding it and he just passes it up over his head because Elsa is, it's, it's too dark, it's evening, so she's not really sunbathing, but she's in this amazing like two-piece outfit sprawled out on the upper deck mm-hmm. and as he passes it over his head to her she reaches down to grab it brings it to her mouth and and just kind of like stretches out wells gets all this from overhead so the top right. of grisby's head and the camera just slides to take in her whole body again i'm not going to claim that i can resist that shot sure but but it's all there's a moment where it's purely the camera leering because yeah, grisby and, doesn't even look and nicely beautifully glowingly lit in a movie that otherwise relies on a lot of shadows and a lot of silhouette and some grotesqueness as you said some distortion of imagery that's one where there's there's total clarity right in how rita hayworth looks absolutely and it's funny when you talk about some of the real life elements coming in i don't know a lot about rita hayworth but i did know about her kind of red or auburn hair. I'm thinking of the poster Mm. in Andy Dufresne's jail cell in the Shawshank Redemption, and you watch her here with that icy, short, blonde hair. And you do a little digging and realize, well, that was kind of one of the big controversies and how he made Harry Cohn at Columbia so mad is that Wells said, I'm going to make my wife take away one of her, her signature effects, that hair that everyone knows, the Rita Hayworth look, I'm going to make her change her hair blonde. And am I the only one? Again, this movie is 10, how many years? 10, 12 years, something like that before Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo comes out. Mm. But isn't it interesting when you see some of those scenes at the end taking place in San Francisco with a blonde Rita Hayworth walking around, knowing that her husband made her made her change to look like that? You're thinking... Was Hitchcock a fan of this movie? Was was Hitchcock a fan of at least the same psychological warfare? I think we know the answer to that. Yeah, totally. I, I think you're absolutely onto something because that is the look that we have here. And it's interesting, it, you know, a little bit of reading that I did too. She she was kind of famous for this 1941 Life magazine pinup photo series. Mm-hmm. And and you look at those, it just kind of speaks to to the movie itself. Like she actually has more dimensionality in those photos there than she gets in this film. There, there, hmm. There's just like something that's brought forth where you feel like this is a real person with a real story that's, that's missing from the lady from Shanghai. And so I think that's, you know, if this movie even more than most is going to be really revolving around the quote unquote femme fatale, so often they're kind of like, one element in what's going on and, and a supporting character. And here it's really a central, uh, the centrifugal force of the film. You're going to need to get, make this a real person for it to absolutely work. Yeah. I want to go back to one of the scenes I mentioned that I really like. That's maybe not one of the top two, but certainly in the top three for me. And it's that sequence on the cliffs where Grisby gives Michael his pitch for this scheme he's concocted 
And it's just such a good example of Wells' brilliance as a director, because in sequences like this, in important scenes in the film, and sometimes in throwaway scenes in his movies, what's happening with the environment and the scenery around them is never just there to be there. It's not... It's not there for beauty. It's not there even just to kind of open the movie up. Well, let's be on location. And if we're going to be on the sea, let's let's make it something grandiose and visually pleasing. In fact, the way he shoots it, it's actually the opposite of visually pleasing. It's really harrowing and scary and intense, even though you know you're looking at, even in black and white, this gorgeous sea, these wonderful cliffs on an amazingly sunny day. But the higher they go, the more distance they get between the water and them, the way he shoots with that wide-angle lens so that the faces are grotesque in that close-up, so close together, painfully close together, that it it speaks to some kind of psychological tension. It just feels so ominous. And if that's not enough, just looking at the faces, it's, it's the distortion because of that lens, how close the water actually seems to them. So... They're very high up. You know, it's a long way down. And yet the water seems almost like it's encroaching on them, almost like there's an inevitability to something dangerous, something bad happening to them. I don't think he even after a while, Josh, shows where they're standing. So they kind of feel like they're actually hovering above it in any minute, any minute they're going to go. So a scene like that could have been shot so many different ways. A conversation between two men hatching a plot and Wells turns it into something pretty magnificent. It's so dizzying, and it's a combination of the claustrophobia, as you described, of the being so intense on their faces, and knowing that that vast open space is somewhere just beyond them mm-hmm. that, you know, like, like you're saying, they could fall into at any point. So let me quickly describe the, the sailing montage, and then maybe we can get to the really bravura visual climax in the hall of mirrors. But early on, you know, this is when O'Hara first agrees to go on this sailing, be employed to be a hand on their cruise. And we get this, it's almost like a surrealist series of what you might expect of sailing images of the ship itself, but then they're interspersed with more grotesque close-ups of the bug-eyed banister. I think even his dog at one point is thrown in there barking. And this may be entirely just like a result of the studio cutting things up. I don't know. But But it absolutely comes at you at this, again, disorienting, surrealist experience that throws you off guard. But yeah, that, I think the... Tour de Force visually is the climatic confrontation. This is when O'Hara, Elsa, and Bannister have, they've met each other in this carnival's hall of mirrors. And what I think is really interesting is it's not only displays Wells, you know, visual inventiveness and genius, but I think it exactly, perhaps not to his understanding, reveals the misogynistic element of this, or maybe he's being confessional here. I don't know. But Mm. when we see Hayworth in these mirrors, we get a number of images of her at the same time. Right. And some of them are just, it's Rita Hayworth, right? It's, she is like glam bang gorgeous. But then if you look at, uh, at a few others of her Mm -hmm. or another shot of her, it captures her face where it's just a little bit distorted And she's, so at the same time, she's irresistible and she's repulsive. The same sequence. And to me, it's just like so evocative of 
what the lady from Shanghai is. Maybe Wells intended it all, but even if he didn't, I think it's incredibly revealing. Well, he really notably, noticeably dehumanizes her in that sequence. Think about when she says, I love you to him. And the way she says it, it's not like your typical femme fatale where she's really laying it on. She's really almost pleading her case and is trying to be irresistible. She whispers it monotone like she's a robot. We could have gone off together. Into the sunrise. You and me or you and Grisby. I love you. It's as if Wells has said, I know you're just going through the motions. And I actually really like the the Hayworth performance. I like that she does modulate herself that way, but she really does strike me in that sequence almost like a robot, still visually, and you wonder what that sequence could have been, what it should have been. What was Wells' actual vision for it? What we get, the four minutes or four and a half minutes, is obviously remarkable and and makes everything else kind of pay off by the end, even if from a, a thematic standpoint or from a substance standpoint, it makes you a little queasy when you see what he does again, amplifying the psychological horror of this and manifesting what they're thinking, what they're feeling in a visual way, that scene where Bannister appears mm. and the quick cuts where then he multiplies in yes. the scene and the way I think, She's walking across the scene at one point, but then we also get her face almost like it's held in a dissolve and then Bannister shows up. I mean, there is so much going on in the last four and a half minutes of this film. It almost seems as if there are images taken from the scene that are superimposed on top of some of the action going on as well. So you get just multiple Bannisters, multiple Hayworths, as we said. It's incredible, but it does, you can't deny that it does. How does it end, right? It's almost like the movie has, this is where the movie itself, its mind is breaking. It's finally confronting how it's been Mm -hmm. looking at this character and perhaps its lead actress the whole time. And what does it do? This is where, this is where I'm like, you know, left thinking, okay, this is, this is really a troubled film because the deeply disturbing decision it makes when confronted with its conflicting reactions is what? To leave Elsa for dead, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, it's it's like right there for you yeah. on the screen. Yeah, and walk away as if he's he's learned a valuable lesson from it. And he knows now that the only way he's really going to survive is that he's going to leave some of this foolishness behind mm. and that the only way to really live or live a long life is to not get involved in these types of scenarios with these types of women. You're absolutely right. I do want to go back to the aquarium real quick because from the very beginning of that scene, you're really hooked by the way they're completely in silhouette talking to each other against the glow of the aquarium. And I think it's just a gigantic octopus, but it, <laughs> the way Wells shoots it, it's like this monstrous blob. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the danger. It just portends this ominousness, this blob behind them. And then we get that distortion effect again, where there's some crispness sometimes to the way we see her or even the darkness of the silhouette. But then other times there's that glow, but it's the glow that's the the wavy reflection of the water. So it almost feels like her face is always shifting and you can't totally get a read on her. But there again, just like the water on the cliff, He's using that wide angle lens and the background with these creatures feels like 
it is literally about to chomp them, <laughs> like come through the glass or they're in the water with these creatures. And I even love one scene, Josh, where she's moving, I think, left to right on screen and the sharks behind her are swimming the same way <laughs> yeah. and moving like at the same same tempo. Again, there's this kind of sense of inevitability, this kind of forward motion that once they're on it, once they're heading down this path, they they really can't pull themselves back, which is kind of that that inevitability, that fatalism that that comes with noir. You would love to to know, wouldn't you? It, how like if they had to do those sequences a million times, just waiting for the the, the eels and the octopus and the sharks to be <laughs> exactly. in the right place, yeah. or or if somehow Wells was like a sea creature whisperer. I don't know, but but it works. It's fantastic. <laughs> hey. He was a genius. I wouldn't put it past him, Josh. The Lady from Shanghai is currently streaming free to Amazon Prime members. It's also available to rent on most platforms and perhaps at your local library. We are going to talk about Jimmy Cagney and White Heat to close out the marathon in a couple of weeks. For more about this marathon and all of our past marathons, visit filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, that's our show. Indeed. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, maybe share some of your favorite 70s movies, Moms, for next week's show, you can find Adam at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you'll find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the Film Spotting poll. We're asking who gives the best 21st century movie crime boss performance. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. On digital coming out this weekend is The Mitchells versus The Machines. I have heard nothing about this movie, but I have to admit I'm a little bit intrigued after reading this sentence from our friend David Ehrlich, who says, Imagine if The Incredibles had been directed with the underdog flair in a reverent whiplash of an Edgar Wright film, and you'll be most of the way there. You going to see this now, Josh? I mean, now I'm afraid David's setting too high of a bar. <laughs> right. <laughs> Without remorse, also out, Michael B. Jordan plays an elite Navy SEAL who uncovers an international conspiracy while seeking justice for the murder of his pregnant wife. That's based on a book by Tom Clancy. I saw the face you made there, Josh. I think mm. I think we'll be skipping skipping that one. Out in limited release, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, appearing back in theaters, it seems, a 10th anniversary re-release. That's a movie that we should, and maybe at some point will revisit, because I recall 10 years ago just being kind of meh on Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, Adam. I know. Adam. Adam. I mean, maybe... Maybe my favorite Edgar Wright. Really? Yeah. It's well, brilliant. Well, after seeing Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim does get elevated in my mind, but I would like to revisit that film. I think I gave it a positive review, Josh, just maybe not quite as adoring as some other critics. It sounds like you were one of them, Josh. Next week on the show. You're really worried the, about this, aren't who's you? The, who's, the, who's the other obvious, like, terrible mom? Was there a mom in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Probably. They were a family, right? Yes. It's our top five 70s movie moms. What an age for parenting. <laughs> Mrs. White. You got Meryl Streep and Kramer versus Kramer. You've got Faye Dunaway in Chinatown. Should be a great list, Josh. I can't wait. We'll also talk about. <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought about that last one. 
Chantel Ackerman's News from Home, part of our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.